Hello and welcome to my first Mormon-themed screencast entitled, Why People Leave the LDS Church and What Family, Friends, and Community Can Do About It. My name is John DeLynn. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about me, I'm a fifth or sixth generation Mormon. Uh, I'm a descendant or relative of Ezra T. Benson, which also means I'm a distant cousin of Ezra Tapp Benson. Also, Samuel Rose Parkinson, the P in my uh, middle, middle uh, initial stands for Parkinson. I'm a lifelong member of the church. I'm 36 years old. I'm still uh, quite active in the church. Uh, um, I served a mission in Guatemala and also uh, four months in Arizona, full mission. Um, was a zone leader there uh, in, in both missions. I was married in the uh, Washington, D.C. temple. Um, I'm married with four children. I'm currently serving um, as Elders Quorum Instructor uh, in my ward here in uh, North Logan in, in Utah. And I'm also a former early morning seminary instructor. So I just felt like it was important to begin this presentation by letting you know um, that this presentation doesn't come from an anti-Mormon, an ex-Mormon, someone who's got it out against the church. Um, some of you might even accuse me of being a wolf in sheep's clothing. But I just want to state on the record um, that I'm a devoted, active member of the church, uh, committed uh, to making the church a better place, um, and to doing my part within it. And uh, I wanted to sort of get that out um, in front. Now, every year, thousands of devout members of the LDS Church um, leave it or go inactive. And you might well want to think that these are just, you know, maybe converts that quickly fall inactive. But the truth is, many of the people I know are like me, fifth or sixth generation Mormons. They descend from prominent church leaders, including Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. Uh, many of them are returned missionaries who have been married to the temple, who have large families. Um, uh, that's sort of the profile um, of many of the people that are leaving the church each year especially when they leave due to historical um, or doctrinal issues. Um, a recent Salt Lake Tribune article highlighted very publicly what's been known in, in sort of the circles I've been running in for quite some time, which is that, you know, basically two-thirds of the church is inactive. So, you know, there are four to five million active members of the church, but there are seven to eight million inactive. In fact, they say that a third of the church, they don't even know, you know where the people are. These people don't call themselves Mormons. They were baptized and immediately fell away. Um, and so we're looking at only sort of a third to maybe you know, two-fifths of the church membership actually being active in the church. So um, you know, this is uh, something very important to keep in mind. Uh, inactivity, there are more inactive Mormons than active Mormons, both in and outside of Utah. Um, it's very easy to throw labels on these people who have fallen away, to say that they're sinners, that they must have some sin they want to, you know, they just want to drink alcohol or have illicit sex or take drugs or whatever. It's very easy to say that these people are just weak, you know, uh, you know, maybe they weren't as valiant in the pre-existence. It's easy to say that they've, you know, oh, they stopped going to the temple or they stopped reading the scriptures and that's why they fell away. Um, or you could just blame it on the internet and say, oh, that dang internet, or anti-Mormon literature, the literature, they stumbled upon that and now they've left. But the truth is those are, those are cop-outs in many instances. Sometimes they may be true, but in many, many instances that I've come across, 
these are not what's at the core of why many people are leaving the church. And in fact, uh, to those who have serious issues with the church, these assumptions are highly, highly insulting. Yet they're the ones that often seem to be um, offered most often um, as reasons or justifications or uh, attempts to explain why people leave. So now I'd like to sort of take a moment to answer the question, why would anyone leave the LDS Church? Um, if you really want to help them or love them or be their friend or treat them in a Christ-like way, you must know what they're thinking and feeling. You certainly cannot befriend them or reach them or help them if they need help if you don't understand where they're coming from. So part of the purpose of this presentation is to give you a sense for their mindset and why um, people uh, leave. So I'm going to give you sort of a brief synopsis of how it happens in my experience. I will be listing some controversial or unpleasant aspects of Mormonism, and I just want to tell you up front that the only reason I'm doing it is not to just expose you to dangerous things. But if you want to help these people, you have to know where they're at, what got them to the place uh, they're at, um, so that you can then uh, work with them or talk to them or, or love them and just understand where they're coming from. In my experience, it usually happens in, um, in this way. There's some seminal event in their lives that raises an important question about Mormonism. Let's say they're called as a seminary or a gospel doctrine teacher, which was true in my case. All of a sudden, they want to learn more about the church, and they want to be a better teacher, so they start digging into church history. Or maybe they're watching some random TV show, and all of a sudden it mentions Mormons in a way that they're unfamiliar. Or maybe there's some big news event um, that has to do with Mormonism that's pretty controversial that makes them start asking or thinking about some questions. Or maybe they stumble across some book or magazine article that talks about Mormonism in a way they're not familiar. And, of course, there's always the option of some close family or friend announcing that they're leaving the church. That can be very jolting to some and, of course, stumbling upon anti-Mormon literature. But there's always some sort of event that kicks off a quest for further knowledge and understanding. It's usually not done with the intent to leave, but instead to be a better member, to follow the admonition, to study things out in our mind, you know, to seek truth, to be lovers of truth and of wisdom. Um, and that's, in my experience, how it often starts. But from there, <coughs> it becomes difficult. You know, some examples include a recent South Park episode where it talks about the life of Joseph Smith. And while it's talking about it, it shows Joseph Smith sticking his head in a hat, um, reading from a peepstone. And then it shows Oliver Cowdery translating. And, and people would ask, now what is that? Why is Joseph sticking his head in a hat? That's something... You know, I've never heard of. We'll talk about that more um, soon. Or maybe it's the Larry King interview where Gordon B. Hinckley comes on and Larry King asks him what, what the church's view is on polygamy and Gordon B. Hinckley answers, it's not doctrinal. You know, for many um, within the church who heard that statement, it was a shock. Um, or, you know, when Larry King asks President Hinckley, you know, what's your thoughts on God once being a man? And President Hinckley's response was something to the effect of, oh, well, I don't know much about that, I don't know that we teach it, I don't know that we emphasize it. You know, for the average Mormon who's grown up in the church, statements like that can be very shocking and confusing. Or the recent Newsweek article that says things like uh, mentioning the printing press that was destroyed. Most people 
probably don't know about the Nauvoo Expositor and the printing presses that was destroyed as a precursor to Joseph's incarceration in Carthage and his martyrdom. Or maybe, you know, many people, including me, don't know that Joseph Smith had 30 wives. I didn't learn this until I was 30 years old after a lifetime in the church. Um, and that he had massive debts and hundreds of enemies. You know, we don't learn about Joseph's weaknesses in church. And so when we read about it in a magazine, all of a sudden it can become troublesome. Um, and, you know, another quote was from this article was, the decades of serious and honest scholarship have failed to uncover credible evidence that these Book of Mormon civilizations ever existed, which is a quote from Simon Southerton. But the point isn't that these are, you know, smoking guns that say the church isn't true. Um, but what they are, are are things that Mormons, you know, often don't hear in church, hear throughout their lives, and when they hear it for the first time in mainstream media or outside the church, it becomes shocking and sends them on a quest to learn more. You know, uh, news events, one example is the Mark Hoffman affair, where, you know, a, a ingenious young man who was also quite diabolical is able to fool Boyd K. Packer and Spencer W. Kimball and Gordon B. Hinckley and forge documents, um, convince the brethren who we would all expect to have extra special powers of um, premonition and of uh, being good judges of character and having the spirit of discernment, which is an unfair expectation probably, but we do expect it. And we ask why they weren't more in tune with the Holy Ghost to know that Mark Hoffman was a fraud and to keep the, the two murders that happened from happening. So those are, you know, that's another type of event that would set someone off with questions. And, of course, Elder Oaks himself has acknowledged that, that the brethren were fooled. And, you know, one very classic way that people uh, start on this quest is by just reading church history. You know, the Journal of Discourses is full um, of quotes that I think the church is, is frankly embarrassed about now. Um, whether it's, you know, Brigham Young's racist quotes or his teachings of Adam-God theory or, you know, blood atonement. You know, these are teachings that we've distanced ourselves from officially as a church um, and uh, we de-emphasize and even try and, and um, you know, say that we don't believe these things anymore. Um, and, of course, you know, a book like Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, um, written by David O. McKay's niece, viewed by many as one of the most important biographies on Joseph Smith, can just uh, do uh, sincere damage to your view of uh, Joseph Smith uh, relative to how you sort of viewed him when you were growing up. So once these seminal events occur in uh, a Mormon's life, you know, one of the first things they do now on the Internet is go to Google, and they type in some questions. And, of course, as soon as they do, you know, there are several websites that are there ready to talk about these issues. Unfortunately, none of them are uh, the church websites because the church doesn't really like to deal with these issues in any depth. So there are no, you know, official church responses on these issues that are in any way substantive. Um, there are some apologetic sites and uh, sometimes those are helpful, but for many people, um, ap apologetic techniques just don't work. They, they turn people off and even make them uh, feel the church is less credible. Um, so uh, where they often turn are ex-Mormon or anti-Mormon sites where people have a lot of anger, sometimes justifiably so, a lot of frustration, um, and that's sort of what leads them to quickly want to leave the church and asked to have their records um, 
you know, uh, removed from the church. If I just sort of explain or summarize, you know, what happens in this quest, you know, we Mormons oftentimes are taught growing up throughout our entire lives that the world is black and white, that there's bad in the world and good, and anything you come across in the world can be put in one of those two categories. The world is either black or it's white. It's a very simple point of view, and that's how we see it. Prophets, good. Scriptures, perfect. The church, good, perfect. Uh, everything's under control. General authorities, inspired. And everything is either good or bad. And other churches, bad. Other scriptures that aren't ours, bad. And, and that's sort of how we see the world. Non-Mormons, not as good as Mormons. Our church, true. All other churches, false. Um, and once, uh, once a Mormon starts digging into this history, and the culture, we realize that there is such a thing as a prophet who's made major mistakes. There is such a thing as a church that's made major mistakes. There is such a thing as scriptures that have flaws, even LDS scriptures that have flaws. And all of a sudden they start seeing the world for the first time in shades and degrees and color. And it's quite a complex um, uh, new worldview. And what you see between these two images is a huge gap. Um, And that gap is dramatic and it's shocking. And this is sort of what someone who's left the church experiences. Their whole world crumbles and they see the world in a different light for the very first time. It doesn't have to be a bad thing, um, but if, uh, if, if there aren't the right supports, and uh, role models, for example, to be there when they go through this. It can have disastrous consequences for them, for their family, etc. So when their world falls apart, um, what do they do? Now what I'd like to do is give you an introduction to the major issues um, that you know the average person leaves the church over. Um, and I want to make three disclaimers about it. Um, everything I show you here... Um, can be easily substantiated through church publications. So I'm not bringing up a bunch of stuff that's found just in people who hated the prophet, um, and so they wrote bad things about him that are lies. I, you know, I did my best to create this presentation only from stuff that can be substantiated through church publications, through the Ensign, through Times and Seasons, through Millennial Star, through the Journal Discourses, through you know official church publications. So. Most of the stuff the apostles and prophets themselves have acknowledged um, and found some way to try and defend. So know that at the outset. Also know that this is not an exercise in me blaming the brethren, saying that they're bad, saying that I'm better than them or no more than the brethren. You know, Most of these issues I don't lay at the feet of the brethren, but instead with the general membership or, frankly, with just humanity and the, and the flaws of people. Um, but I just wanted to sort of get that out in the open. And then finally, nothing in this entire presentation do I believe is a smoking gun that proves that the church is, quote, not true, unquote, or not inspired by God. Not one thing here. So know that even though I'm showing you, I'm about to show you some really hard things, to me, none of this stuff should be viewed as, like I said, a smoking gun. So what I learned growing up in the church about Joseph Smith you know, he was a pure and innocent boy. You know, so strong and noble that when he was having major surgery on his leg, he turned down alcohol. Um, he saw God and Jesus in the sacred grove. 
He translated the Book of Mormon using the Urim and Thummim. Um, he had one wife, Emma. I had never heard of any other wife that Joseph had my entire uh, young and adult life. Um, and of course, that he was falsely accused and persecuted um, several times, went to the jail in Carthage like a lamb to the slaughter. And ultimately, you know, no other man has done more um, for the salvation of others uh, than Joseph Smith saved Jesus Christ. Once you start studying church history and church documents, you find out that the history and the facts tell us additional things. So aside from all the good stuff that we know about Joseph, uh, we also learn some things that are quite shocking. For example, that in his youth, he used a magical peepstone to help people try and find buried treasure. Um, there are many sources for this. He admitted it himself. This is not speculation. This is fact. And any reputable historian or credible church authority will acknowledge that this is true. And, you know, I know that when you were growing up, you likely heard uh, that there were court cases that Joseph was involved in. Oftentimes, you know, at least a few of these court cases were because, you know, people were, were um, prosecuting Joseph for activities that were viewed as illegal, like treasure seeking or mysticism or black magic or whatever it was called in the day. I'm not an expert here. But this is something that, you know, people aren't taught growing up, and so uh, it's often hard for them to learn for the first time. Um, the first vision itself um, has several different versions. So the first time Joseph told or wrote down the first vision story, he only mentioned that he saw Christ, and he didn't mention God the Father in two personages, and he didn't mention that he was told to start a new church. He just said that they had to talk about, you know, his worthiness, etc. And and as the story gets told. Um, over the 10 or 15 years um, after he started writing it down, you'll see that it evolves, it enhances and changes. And, and while you know, there are people who have tried to make really good explanations for that, you know, these differences are significant uh, in my view um, and are at least uh, sort of um, something that would cause someone to question or wonder why he didn't get that story right the first time and keep it consistent throughout, especially when it was such an important event. Um, you know, you also learn, just like from that South Park episode, uh, that the traditional way that, that we've been taught that Joseph translated the Book of Mormon, which is sitting behind a veil with a Urim and Thummim on, with the plates in front of him, translating character by character, is not the way that those who were in the room with him say that he actually did it, especially during the Oliver Cowdery portions of the translation. Instead, um, what, what even Russell M. Nelson himself has acknowledged is that Joseph took that same peepstone that he used to find treasure, buried treasure, stuck it in a hat, stuck his face in the hat, um, and would then read off uh, the Book of Mormon without the plates even being in the room. And this is pretty much accepted as fact now by those who understand the translation process. So, you know, that's a shocker. Why did he have the plates if he wasn't going to use them in the translation process? Um, why was he sticking his head in a hat? No one's ever told me that before, yet that's the way it happened. You know, not that this is a smoking gun because the word of wisdom, um, you know, wasn't made really law in the church until the 20th century, but Joseph Smith drank beer and wine as an adult. He even drank wine the night before he was martyred in Carthage. He says this in his own journal. Um, you know, it's also shocking to find out that Joseph had 30 wives. 
uh, family, if you go to familysearch.org, which is the church's genealogical website, it acknowledges that. Um, some of these wives were actually married to other men at the time that he was sealed to them. And these men were living. So imagine if I went to someone, someone else's wife and said, will you marry me? Uh, don't tell your husband. Um, you know, imagine what that would be like. And that's sort of what the data show. These are facts. Also, several of these women were teenagers. And, you know, you kind of wonder why um, Joseph was marrying 14-year-old girls, for example. So, um, also, you find out that um, throughout his entire time of practicing polygamy, whenever he was asked publicly if he was practicing polygamy, he denied it. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Elder Oaks has acknowledged that this is a fact. It's in church uh, publications. So, in essence, Joseph Smith did not tell the truth about the fact that he was practicing polygamy. Um, that's disturbing to many people. Um, and, of course, um, when, when, when a, a second counselor in, in the first presidency um, actually uh, left the church and created a newspaper um, telling the world that Joseph was, in fact, lying and he was practicing polygamy, Joseph ordered that the printing press be destroyed um, and that's what led to him being put in jail in Carthage, which ultimately led to his martyrdom. Um, so these are facts, and they're quite different from the standard story we hear growing up. None of them prove that Joseph Smith wasn't inspired by God, but they certainly are quite shocking. And you can bet that your Mormon friend or family member who's left the church has come across uh, most of these issues. So how about scripture in the Book of Mormon? You know, we learned that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth. It was found in Hill Cumorah in New York, where it was buried by Moroni. We learned that it is a history of Native Americans of Central, South, and North America, and even the Pacific Islands. And we know that the Book of Abraham was translated from a book of from a papyrus that Joseph Smith got, um, I believe, in Kirtland. You know, <clears throat> you know that's what we know about the scriptures, Mormon scriptures. Well, the facts are quite interesting. Um, we find out in reality that there have been over 4,000 changes made to the Book of Mormon since it was created. A lot of them are minor, but some of them are quite significant. You know, people have tried to pay attention to the geography in the Book of Mormon with the narrow neck of land and the waters of Mormon and, you know, all the other um, issues surrounding how long it took people to march places and settle places. No one's ever be able to f never been able to find any geography that really credibly maps um, to what's in the Book of Mormon. Um, Camorra, uh, you know, we know that Joseph Smith got the, the plates from the Hill Camorra in New York, um, but it doesn't really seem to jive uh, with the geography. Where's the narrow neck of land? Where are the waters of Mormon? Um, you know, it, it certainly probably wasn't around New York, and most of the civilization that we know about that built temples and all sorts of things the Book of Mormon described is in Central America. But there's no way that, that Moroni lugged plates that were 150 pounds all the way up to New York by himself walking um, to bury them there. So, of course, apostles and others have tried to say that there were maybe two Camorras, um, etc., etc. But the truth is, you know, this starts to sound a little bit sketchy. And then you think about all the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. Anachronisms meaning something being out of place chronologically. So an example would be in a movie about the 18th century, if they had airplanes in a movie, you know, in the 1700s, that would be out of place. Well, there 
are lots of things in the Book of Mormon that when taken on face value uh, are chronologically out of place. You know, steel, you know, was never invented by the Native Americans, yet the Book of Mormon mentions steel, steel swords and armor, etc. All the bones for the millions of soldiers who were died and killed, where are they? You know, why haven't we found piles and piles and piles of bones? We certainly, you know, you know, have in Europe and Asia. Why not, um, you know, in America? We know that horses were not found anywhere in the United States, in the world, in, in, in Central, South, or, or North America before the Spaniards came here. It was the Spaniards who brought horses. They did not find, you know, the, the Aztecs or the Mayas or the Incas on horses. There just weren't any. Elephants, you know, haven't existed on, on the American continent since, you know, 10,000 B.C., as I understand it. There certainly wasn't any steel. And if there was steel, why haven't we found the swords and the helmets and the breastplates for the millions of soldiers who killed each other? Yet not one steel sword or breastplate, etc., has been found. Um, why is that? Barley and wheat, for example, you know, were domesticated in Europe and have sophisticated methods to grow them. None of that stuff uh, was here, yet the Book of Mormon mentions it being used. A seven-day calendar, etc. You know, all these things are sort of out of place, and so it makes you wonder in the Book of Mormon um, why those things are there. Um, many of you have probably heard of the DNA controversies. Uh, those who have, who have sort of done DNA tests on Native Americans you know, over 95% of the DNA uh, of the people tested, Native Americans tested, show that their lineage goes straight to Asia, meaning they crossed the Bering Strait, not came over on a boat from Israel, and were Israelites. And so now we've backed off. For, for 150 years, the, the general authorities have called the, the Native Americans Lamanites, and now we don't do that anymore because we really don't know if they're Lamanites. And we're starting to say that the Book of Mormon happened maybe in a very small part of America and we don't know quite where but then how did millions and millions of people show up so you know these are very important questions that are fair questions they're not just nitpicky trying to find fault in the church but they're legitimate questions that call into question for many the historicity or the authenticity of the Book of Mormon um, um, and finally you know there was a book that was written when Oliver Cowdery um, uh, was still living back in his hometown by a preacher. And this book was called A View of the Hebrews. And while no one claims that the Book of Mormon was taken word for word or even in large chunks from the View of the Hebrews, it's very interesting to note that this book, View of the Hebrews, claimed basically that a group of people left Israel and sailed to America in a boat and um, started civilizations in America and that there were a good and bad tribes within America that fought each other, and that these Israelis um, became the inhabitants and the ancestors of the current modern-day American Indians. You know, why was this book written five or ten years before the Book of Mormon? Um, you know, things like this cause, you know, people who are credible just trying to understand truth to ask these questions. And, of course, finally, the Book of Abraham, um, you know, Experts now agree, including Hugh Nibley, that uh, the Book of Abraham um, is not a translation from the papyrus that Joseph Smith had. Instead, those papyrus were funeral texts that were used, you know, um, whenever someone died in Egypt. But they had, you know, 
everyone, including LDS scholars who have read them, agree that there's real no significant um, correlation between the papyrus and what um, Joseph produced as the book of Abraham. Um, so, you know, this is shocking stuff to find out for the first time, especially when you've been a member of the church your whole life. How about church leadership? We're told to follow the prophet, that the prophet talks with God, um, that the words of modern prophets are scripture, and that when the brethren have spoken, the discussion ends. You know, we're told that Bruce R. McConkie's book, Mormon Doctrine, was just that, Mormon Doctrine. We're told that LDS general authorities are among the most righteous people in the world, or at least that's how we're raised culturally to feel. And the history and facts tell us that this isn't always the case. In spite of having some great leaders who have been great inspired men and women, they have not been perfect. We all know that Brigham Young taught, for example, that Adam was God and that God was Adam. And this was called the Adam-God theory. And he taught it all through the journal discourses. And it's something that we no longer teach or really believe as a church. He taught that blood atonement, that the best thing you can do for someone who's committed certain types of sins is kill them on the spot. And that that's a favor that you can do for somebody um, if they've committed certain sins. One of those sins being a white person marrying a black person. He felt that that was punishable by death. Um, we all know that, you know, if we've read the journal discourses and if you saw the previous slide, that the Brigham Young was racist. And he said some horrible things about, about black people, um, including the fact that they would never, ever receive the priesthood in this life um, until the millennium. Um, you know, as far as the journal discourses go, we as a church have completely distanced ourselves from them. You won't see many quotes from the journal discourses in modern uh, church curricula. Um, in fact, as I understand it, at Salt Lake, the editors and the writers of church manuals have been told, use the journal discourses only as a last result. Um, and so, you know, we're distancing ourselves from that. Those who have studied how we've handled church history um, can, can say, you know, without being unfair, that we've been less than candid. It's not that we've hidden everything. It's not that we've lied. But we certainly haven't been open and upfront about our history as a church. Um, there have been many changes. This notion that we're, the church is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever is not true. Major teachings have been changed, including the polygamy. It was once taught that polygamy was a requirement for the celestial kingdom and an eternal law, and now we're being told that it's not doctrinal. I, I know that that's, um, th there are explanations for that, but the truth is polygamy is doctrinal. It's being practiced today in Mormon temples when someone's spouse dies and they remarry. You know, plural marriages happen in the Mormon temple today with those who are marrying someone, you know, whose former spouse passed away. Um, so also, you know, blacks. It was once taught that blacks would never receive the priesthood. And, and now we don't even talk about how uh, they were unworthy in the preexistence, etc., and we've even read in recent um, publications that David O. McKay believed that the ban on the on the blacks um, was actually a church policy, even not church doctrine. You know, these are mind-blowing, major shifts in in perspective that that a Mormon confronts. We we've read recently about how the book Mormon Doctrine um, was received with anger by the First Presidency by David O. McKay. That he was furious 
that Bruce R. McConkie called it Mormon doctrine, that he commissioned a study that found over a thousand errors in the book, that, that Elder McConkie was punished and censured for doing it, and that a rule was created as a result from then on saying that no general authority could publish a book without church permission. And he was told not to ever publish the book again. And in fact, um, the brethren seriously considered publicly censuring him and decided not to because they didn't want to undermine the uh, authority or the mantle of the general authority. Um, You know, that's shocking to find out because many of us um, used that book for years and years and years as being doctrine, as being the gospel. Of course, most of you are familiar with Paul H. Dunn, who was a general authority who, while uh, being a good man, claimed that he was a professional baseball player when he wasn't, and claimed that he fought in World War II in ways that he didn't, and basically made a lot of money and got a lot of fame out of telling stories that were faith-promoting, but not true. George P. Lee was excommunicated. He was a general authority, a Native American general authority. Richard Lyman was an apostle in the 40s who was excommunicated for adultery. So, you know, church leaders are not perfect. They make mistakes, sometimes really big ones. Um, You know, the Mark Hoffman case we've already talked about, how the brethren were deceived um, and fooled. And then, you know, we could enumerate, you know, a decent list of of abuses that have happened within the church, from from, uh, not dealing with sexual you know, uh, harassment or sexual abuse appropriately, either state presidents or bishops or whoever actually performing the abuse or covering it up, etc. Um, all sorts of baptismal abuses that, that, that have happened, including the baseball baptisms of the early 60s in Great Britain, to the soccer baptisms that I experienced on my mission in Guatemala, and ecclesiastical abuses as well. Um, I don't mean to be saying all this to say the church is bad and ugly and nasty. It's just that you don't really get exposed to this until you start studying in depth. And then once you do, the chasm between what you thought and what actually is is just really wide. Finally, you know, what about church doctrine? Is it the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is it straight from God to the prophets? What about the word of wisdom? Um, what about the temple ceremony? Um, <clears throat> Well, as I mentioned before, it's quite shocking to hear that, you know, on the issue of men becoming gods and vice versa, that President Hinckley would say, I don't know that we teach it, I don't know that we emphasize it. Um, on polygamy, say it was not doctrinal. To find out that the, the word of wisdom wasn't a commandment until the early 1900s, that many past prophets and apostles drank alcohol and used tobacco, including Brigham Young's son, who was an apostle that Joseph Smith had a bar in his mansion, drank wine the night before he was murdered. You know, these are things that we're not told. Um, And it's shocking to find them out. And then finally, you know, those of us who went through the temple before 1990 know that there were many many disturbing elements of the temple ceremony uh, that were shocking and caused many people to never want to return to the temple after the first time they went. A lot of these things had been removed, and so it begs the question, You know, why is an ordinance that's supposed to be given directly from God changing so dramatically? Um, And why were such disturbing things uh, included uh, at all? So, again, I want to just emphasize this very, very strongly. Yes, I've listed a lot of things that are shocking or disturbing about the church, to some. But I want to tell you uh, that I have a personal conviction that nothing that I've mentioned today proves that the church is evil or satanic or or false. Uh, 
Um, and many of this stuff does not bother me at all um, and has very reasonable explanations. Um, so my point isn't to cast stones or dispersions on the church. I'm just trying to get you to think about what your loved one is going through right now. And I want you to think about what the gap is between what they were taught, you know, what their understanding was growing up in the church, and then what they've recently discovered. The gap is huge, and it's very troubling and disturbing. So how do they feel when they discover all this? They feel stunned. They feel betrayed. They feel lied to. They feel like a cover-up has been done. They feel disgusted, and they feel very angry. They start thinking about all the tithing they've paid. They start thinking about all the, all the times they went to the temple, all the proxy work they did. They start thinking about all the sacrifices and all the callings and, and um, how much they you know, um, gave to the church um, to discover that things were just so dramatically different. And it, it's a hard thing to go through, something that uh, is very difficult and hopefully is, is worth a lot of empathy and understanding. <clears throat> Once this happens to you, you never look at Joseph Smith the same way again. You never look at scripture the same way again. You don't look at the church as you used to in terms of its being you know, infallible. You never think of priesthood authority in the same way. Uh, you can still respect them, but whether you follow them blindly, uh, it's a totally different matter. And for many people, their entire religious world falls apart. And not only the church comes into question, but Christ comes into question, and God himself comes into question. Um, you know, people are fundamentally changed relative to the gospel when they experience these historical and doctrinal issues. And when you're dealing with them, you have to understand that. You can't just pull the car to follow the brethren or read your Book of Mormon or do what the brethren say um, or listen to the Holy Ghost because their entire worldview has just fallen apart into shambles in many instances. And so you have to keep that in mind as you're dealing with them um, because that's sort of the way it works. Now, how do we as a church tend to deal with these people who have these problems and decide to leave or, or fall inactive? We fear them. It's like they have leprosy and we want to stay away from them. We give them labels that are very unproductive, anti-Mormon, ex-Mormon, apostate, dangerous, arc steadiers. The labels go on and on and on. We literally cease communication with them. We ostracize and distance ourselves from them. And you've got to think about this for a second. These people have had their entire religious world fall apart. And in a religion that's supposed to be the one true church, the one that's supposed to follow Christ's teachings, not only do they have to deal with the, the emotional turmoil of having their world fall apart, but they see all these people who are supposed to be Christians treat them in the least possible Christ-like manner. You have to understand that this doesn't just make them sad about the church. It makes them hate the church. It makes them want to go after the church. It turns them into some of the most rabid, um, you know, uh, mean-spirited, anti-Mormon people you could ever find. Because all of a sudden, um, you know, all the goodness that you would assume 
uh, or ascribed to God's people all of a sudden vanishes um, and people are treated inhumanely. What are the results? Um, marriages become challenged and threatened and often divorce happens because the church is put above the family. Families can dissolve. Children no longer have a mother or a father. Um, the, these people lose in many instances, especially within Utah, their entire um, relationships within their community. And some people even suffer job loss um, as a result, which is a travesty as well. <laughs> we have to ask ourselves as Christians, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, you know, what did Jesus do when he came up with instances like this? Well, Jesus actually caught a lot of flack for associating with people that weren't mainstream you know, Jews. Um, you know, he was railed upon for having dinner with the publicans, for example. Um, when the adulteress was being attacked by all the, quote, churchgoers and the religious, he defended her and attacked them. Very interesting. He encouraged us to go after the one and to leave the 99, to go rescue that one person. He taught us to go the extra mile and even carry their backpacks as we go. Taught us to turn the other cheek. And most importantly, he just listened and he loved people. This is the only credible way um, to handle these situations. Yet it's the most, for some reason, counterintuitive to the average Mormon, and it's the opposite of what they most often do. So, you know, one point I have to stress is we are not treating those who have left the church in a Christ-like manner or those who are struggling with the church. We are treating them in many instances completely un-Christ-like. And it's doing damage to us, and it's doing incredible damage to them and to the church. Now, this naturally leads to the question of how to help. And so first I have to offer some things that we should not do. We should not fear these people. We should not judge them. We should not distance ourselves from them or ostracize them. That is the absolute worst thing we can possibly do. And we should certainly not make them a project. There's this philosophical notion of I-it versus I-thou. I-it is a relationship where I treat you like a thing, like an object. So instead of a person, you're an it. You're an object. And I have a goal for you. I want to change you in some way. I want to make you into a way that helps me or benefits me or makes me feel better. It's doing your home teaching because it's the end of the month. Um, it's reading the scriptures just because you were told to and just sort of running through them. And most importantly, it's saying to someone who's struggling with the church, I'm going to have you as a project and get it so that you're back in the church again. That's an I-it objectified relationship. And in my opinion, more instances than not, it's doomed to failure. The other type of relationship that's worth mentioning is the I-thou relationship. And what that says is, I'm a person, you're a person. I respect you deeply. I want what's best for you. We are equals. I'm your friend. I love you. Let's go on this journey together and see how we can help each other. And that is the only paradigm that we can take with our brethren who have fallen away or been excommunicated or have left that will ever be effective. We need to decide up front we're going to be their friends no matter what. 
at any cost because we love them genuinely, empathize with what they've been through, used to be their friends, and decide that we want to continue being their friends. One of the worst things we can ever do is pressure or guilt trip people into um, <coughs> coming back because that will backfire. And finally, trying to justify a lot of these historical or doctrinal things and practice what I'll call bad apologetics is disastrous. For example, to talk about Fawn Brody's book and say that she was a lesbian or to talk about Michael Quinn and say, oh, he wrote these bad books, but he's gay, and so that's why he did it. Or to try and explain away, well, when they said steal in the Book of Mormon, they really meant an amalgam of these different types of metals that's easily biodegradable. You know, there are all sorts of ways that we can perform bad apologetics, trying to apologize and, in, in many instances, explain away these credible issues um, that make it look like we're hiding something, make it look like we're irrational, make it look like we'll do anything to justify and to explain away something that's credible. I believe that bad apologetics can um, injure more testimonies um, than anti-Mormon literature. And in fact, I've heard people say that you know, bad apologetics do more to harm testimonies um, than anything else uh, within uh, Mormon literature. So these are some things not to do with your loved one who is leaving or has left the church. Now, what are some things you can do? The first thing you can do is validate and acknowledge what they've been through. You can say, man, I totally understand. I struggle with those things too. You totally have merit in the things you feel. Your feelings are valid. I validate them. You can empathize with them. You can show them unconditional love. You can say to them, I don't care if you ever come back to the church. I want you to know that I will always love you and always be your friend. And I embrace you because I respect you and I admire you and I know you're trying to do what's right. You can create genuine friendships with these people. Not that are tied to their church status, but instead are tied to them being human and you being human like I mentioned before. You can provide open forums where you listen and you learn and you don't shut off the conversation. You say, what are the things that bug you? And you don't try and explain all the way. You just listen and say, wow, I understand. You will not believe how impactful it can be to somebody just to have someone else listen to them. One thing that we all ought to think about is how we can instigate a broader education of the membership on these historical and cultural issues because it's very hard to go to church and hear about Brigham Young's wife when he had 50 or however many he had or Joseph Smith's wife or that Joseph Smith turned down alcohol when he knew that he did drink alcohol all throughout his life um, you know and on and on and on the, the Book of Mormon is the most correct book in the world when you know that there are a lot of errors so um, you know it's very important that um, members get up to speed on these issues to say that Joseph was completely innocent when he was put to Carthage jail is not true. He lied about practicing polygamy. He ordered the destruction of a printing press, which is the destruction of private property. Some try to explain that away. But the truth is, you cannot say that he was completely innocent. Um, you can't. And so, you know, it's very hard for someone who's struggling to go to church and hear those things. Um, <coughs> you know, in terms of leaders, it, I've heard of leaders knowing about people who are struggling with their testimony, so they find them callings 
um, where those callings will be beneficial to the person and to the church. So, um, you know, for example, let someone be elders quorum teacher, but say to them, hey, the things that you're not comfortable teaching, we totally support you not teaching them and emphasizing the things that you feel good about, um, etc. Or a Boy Scout calling or whatever calling, you know, is edifying to both. Um, one of the most important things that we could ever do is provide positive role models. There are hundreds and even thousands of people on this planet who know all these issues about Mormonism but still retain testimonies or decide to stay in it. And it's very important to match these people up with those people. Now, one thing that's unfortunate is that um, at some point the church started feeling uncomfortable with groups like Sunstone and Dialogue and started warning people to stay away from symposia and started excommunicating members of these groups and started telling their employees not to support Sunstone or Dialogue anymore. And what this did is it caused many of those people who had done the work to reconcile all these issues with their faith it drove them out of the church or drove them into the underground and it made them so scared that they don't talk anymore openly about things. And so that's unfortunate that that happened. I can't say that's all the church's fault. I think that some of those organizations shared in the blame for sort of getting a little bit too far off on the edge. Um, but providing positive role models can be an essential element to staving off these people's inactivity. And ultimately, we have to just simply respect the free agency of these people um, and not do it as a threat. Like, okay, you can do what you want, but you better realize the consequences of what you're deciding. That's one of the most disastrous attitudes we can take with these people. We ultimately have to just say, we love you, we accept you unconditionally, we want your happiness. You know, if your happiness is leaving the church, then I support you. Um, but if you ever want to stay or come back, I know that I'm here to help you. But either way, I love you and I'm your friend. You know, these are some of the things that I offer as ways to help um, these people and yourself, frankly. Um, and I'd like to end with just a few um, messages for those who have decided um, to completely leave the church. Um, and the one point I'll start out with is the following. Is perfection, or even uh, the lack of major flaws, the measure that we should hold up um, as our affiliation, um, as, as, as our uh, guidelines for affiliation with an organization or with our relationships with other people? And what I mean by that is, let's say you leave the Mormon church tomorrow. Are you going to find a better church, really? A church that doesn't have um, issues that are just as significant or even more significant. Um, and it's not just with church, you know. Can you name a government here in the, in the world that doesn't have major flaws or weaknesses? And does that mean we should all renounce our citizenships globally? Can you name a business that doesn't have ethical problems or, or violations, yet are we still willing to work for those businesses? And you can even take it to marriages or families. You know, perfection is just pretty darn hard to find in this world. And even uh, lack of serious flaws is, is quite hard to find. And so, you know, if, if we're to hold up this expectation that, that we're only going to affiliate ourselves or remain members to something that lacks major flaws, will we become an island? Will we become... Um, devoid of any relationships or affiliations. Um, you know, 
something to think about. Um, also, <coughs> philosophically, this is something Levi Peterson told me once. Do we ever have an obligation when we're in an organization that um, is struggling or has problems? Do we ever have an obligation ethically, instead of just abandoning it, to stick around and make it better? Um, I, I tend to think that we do. And most importantly, there are many people in this church that are struggling with the same issues that we're having. Um, suffering in silence, not able to leave, but not feeling good about staying either. And these people, frankly, need help, need friends, need role models as well. And to just pack up and leave is in many ways to leave these people um, in a very miserable, sad state. Um, I want you to know um, that there are many people who know all of these issues, don't explain, explain them away using bad apologetics, um, but instead uh, remain faithful. And so that doesn't mean that you should sort of follow the Joneses. But, but you should know that um, there are many people who know more than you do, but have decided that it's good and right to stay. And it's just something to keep in mind. Another thing that I'll add is our church, you know, in modern times puts an unhealthy emphasis on things being true. True means, you know, um, absolutely of God and the one true and the only true. And I would consider that there's nothing wrong with not thinking about true, meaning it's better than everyone else or the only one sanctioned by God. Um, if you're uncomfortable with that terminology. There's nothing wrong with just saying, is, is the church good? Is it a net positive? Is it a net positive in your life? And instead of asking what's you know, true and ordained of God, because what's the one true government? What's the one true business? The one true marriage? The one true religion? You, know, <clears throat> you may have a hard time if you're expecting some type of God directly involved, um, semi-flawless organization. What if you just set your standard for what's good? <coughs> what's going to be a positive influence in your life? What's going to be good for you and your family? What's going to bring you and your loved ones the most joy? That's a standard that I think is worth considering. <coughs> um, another instance that, that is important to me, I don't look to the church as a place to be fulfilled all the time and to get all my needs met. Um, oftentimes I do have many important needs met and I am served by my fellow church members. But I look at the church as an incredible place to serve other people. Where else am I going to get to know my neighbors and my community um, in a way that otherwise I would somewhat tend to be isolated and just keep to myself within my own home? Um, the church is an incredible place to find out who's having a baby and needs a meal, um, who's sick and needs to be comforted, um, what service projects are available, um, how to help other people in a disaster, um, how to just get to know struggling youth, etc. And who knows, someday you may even be helped in a time of desperate need by the same community that you've developed. And I acknowledge that there are plenty of ways to serve outside of the church, but I found the church to be a dang good place um, to serve. And, and finally, probably the last point that I want to just uh, leave with you is that there's nothing wrong with deciding that you can be a Mormon on your own terms. And what I mean by that is 
some of the commandments and some of the beliefs and some of the doctrines, you follow wholeheartedly. And other things, you just say, that's not for me. I'm not going to follow that. Or I'm going to follow that in a moderated way. Or, or take my own spin on that doctrine or teaching or commandment or expectation. Because in reality, every single Mormon at their core ends up being a Mormon on their own terms. Whether it's by commission or omission, none of us follows all the teachings of the church and all the commandments of the church perfectly. So since none of us reaches perfection, maybe there's nothing wrong with us just admitting that none of us are perfect and that we're going to go ahead and follow the things that we can or feel good about and leave some other things behind that we don't. So that's sort of my presentation today. I hope um, you've found it helpful. For those of you who have loved ones who are leaving or have left the church, I encourage you just to love them and to try and follow some of these ideas and tactics when you're dealing with them. And for those of you who are struggling with the church and wondering whether you want to leave or if you've left, I want to you know, sort of follow my own advice and just tell you, seek for happiness seek for joy but make sure that you don't um, follow after paths of greater sadness and unhappiness find ways to serve others because that sort of becomes you know that, 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 that's sort of what this life is all about is finding ways to help and serve other people and to find love and joy within your personal relationships your family relationships and your community relationships so I thank you for taking your time to listen. Please feel free to email me at mormonstories um, at gmail.com or come up to my blog site or whatever at, at mormonstories.org and please let me know um, your thoughts and feelings. Uh, this is the first draft of this presentation, so if there are inaccuracies or advice you have for how to make it better, I'd love to find out about it. But all in all, I wish all of you joy and happiness and meaning and fulfillment in your life and I thank you for